cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I uh, Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 26, 2011. Gonna tweak something here on the program today. Try something just a smidge different. I'm... I'm working on a theory. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And uh, we're doing the discernment work, uh, basically comparing what people are saying to God's Word in context to see if that's what God's Word really says. Um, you, you think about the the uh, the incident in the book of Acts where it says that the Bereans, that the, the people there in Berea were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the Apostle Paul came to their town, they actually compared his gospel to what the scriptures say. And so, uh, well, you know, that, that Berean work continues today. And so that's what, a part of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, it's a lot of what we do doing the comparative work. Now, today is Friday, and I'm doing something a little bit different today. So here's the deal. Um, on uh, Friday, September 9th, uh, that's... Is that two weeks from today? Two weeks from today. Uh, or is it? Yeah, <laughs> doing the math here. Yes, it's two weeks from today. I'm going to be uh, uh, basically speaking at a uh, at a uh, two-hour conference, you know, if you would, across the street from Eric Dykstra's church, The Crossing Church. The name of the event is Double Crossed by the Crossing. And I'm going to be speaking there and helping the folks in the city of Elk River, Minnesota, understand what what they've got in uh, Eric Dykstra what is wrong with his methodologies his teaching preaching and uh and so to help them biblically wrap their head around uh the problem that they have there in Eric Dykstra so and uh, if Eric Dykstra wants to attend he's more than welcome to I'd be happy to even talk to him face to face 
Um, you know, and in fact, what I say there in public, I have no problem saying to him privately if he would like to meet with me. And uh, it just just so you all know, uh, we're, we estimate that the total costs for the event are going to run just a little bit more than $1,000. We do not have this budgeted in our budget. This is an unbudgeted expense, and we truly do need your help. Then if you could, uh, if you'd be willing to help us offset the cost of this event, we would truly appreciate that. But uh, what? So here's the deal. In preparation for the event, because I really want to make sure that um, I am able to give people something they can really grasp onto as to what's wrong with Eric Dykstra. I've spent some time over the past couple of days listening to Eric Dykstra's most recent sermons, and I'm noticing a pattern in how he does what he does, and it's. Uh, it, it's not just him that does it. It's a whole bunch of other people. And so what I'm trying to do is really identify the pattern itself. Now, uh, and, and so what we're going to do today, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is called Anatomy of Deceit. That's what I'm going to name it on the podcast, Anatomy of Deceit. And what we're going to do on today's program is we're going to uh, – it's going to be a sermon review. The whole program is going to be dedicated to reviewing a sermon by Eric Dykstra that was preached just a few weeks ago. Um, and um, the name of the sermon is Radical Disciples, but um, I, it's a little bit different than the normal sermon review in that what I really want to focus your attention on is the technique. Um, it's, it's, so it's, it's the how as well as the what, and, uh, and so that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and since we're going to be doing that, that does require me to play our Eric Dykstra update music rather than our sermon review music here. It's a lot. 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 Like, Pastor and servant. 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 Anyway, yeah, you got the idea here. So that, we're going to play that rather than our sermon review music here. But uh, with that in mind, uh, since we're we're going to be really focusing in on Eric Dykstra, uh, let me let me take you back a few years uh, for, the, for for some of us is more than a couple. Um, take you back a few years to like um, high school algebra um, and, or, or junior high math. Okay. There were certain algebraic equations or certain mathematical equations, if you remember back to math class, that uh, your your teacher would tell you, you can tell if you did this problem correctly if you reverse it. Uh, you know, For instance, if it's a multiplication problem, if you then take the number and divide it by this thing and you come out with the same thing, then you know that you've come up with the same – with the, uh, the correct conclusion. Okay, keep this metaphor in your mind, this concept in your mind, because here's here's the theory I'm working on. And unfortunately, this is a rough cut theory, 
But if we were to take each of the propositions, for instance, uh, you know, in, in the Nicene Creed, okay, take each of the propositional statements made in the Nicene Creed, um, the idea is, is because the creed itself is a synopsis and a summary of what the scriptures teach. You could say it's, it's a, a very compressed, tightly compacted uh, a systematic theology, if you would, a, a summary of the, of, of the major arcing uh, story of Scripture and what God has done for us. And each of the statements made in the Nicene Creed, you, if, if, they're, if they're actually biblical, you should be able to go back into the Scriptures themselves and find the underlying statements made in the Scriptures from which the Nicene Creed was woven together. So uh, the idea here is is that, um, you know, for instance, talking about uh, Jesus Christ, and, and we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, begotten of his Father before all world, worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So yeah, so these are statements made about Jesus. So born of the, uh, con- you know, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, you know, uh, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You, if you, if this is a true statement, we can go back into Scripture and find unambiguously in the Scripture the statements that these that in the scriptures that these summarize okay and so uh, you know so all of these statements that are made in the nicene creed in the apostles creed in the in the athanasian creed and i would even argue in the augsburg confession <clears throat> you're going what's that look it up um a book of concord.org um augsburg confession um you should be able to go back into the scriptures and find unambiguously that the scriptures teach these statements that the you know these these propositions these are propositional truths that are correct of what god has revealed in scripture so um you know that being the case when your pastor is quote preaching from the bible the statements that he made if they're acts if they're actually true okay if what he's saying is true you can go back into the Bible and see the clear statements um, that 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 he's you know in the you know, without you know without the pastor's help. You can go back into the Bible and say, "Ah, oh, yes, this is what the scriptures say." And so the, here's the idea: is is that when somebody is summarizing the scripture, you should be able to go back to the scripture and find that those summaries are accurately taught. And so the idea there here is is that. Um, it, it's one of those things where you can correct you can correct your work by going back to the source, kind of like in that mathematical equation. You know those mathematical equations where your t- teacher said, "Now, if you take this, if you take this formula and you and you f- solve the problem here, you can tell if you've got it correctly by going backwards in reverse." And here's how you do it, and 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 so when you, you can correct your work, I think there is a, a, a sense in which these seeker-driven guys. Um, I mean, with that in mind, um, the sermon we're going to uh, listen to is called "Radical Disciples," and um, now I'm going. What I'm going to do to help again, the name of this episode is "Anatomy of Deceit," and what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, I'm going to mess things up for Eric Dykstra, and the reason I'm going to mess them up is so that you can see how he does what he does, because with this in mind, this concept in mind. 
Uh, I'm going to begin at the end. Okay, I'm going to begin at the end. And here's what I'm going to I'm going to take a couple of his statements that he makes, you know, from, you know, the main points of his sermon. And I'm going to give them to you without any of this, any of the illustrations or anything and see what you think. Okay, for instance, in this sermon, you're going to hear Eric Dykstra claim that singing by singing praises to God you merit or earn God's favor. If you sing praises to God, you merit and earn God's favor. And you're going, where does the Bible teach that? Well, you see, if I give it to, if I give you his, if his main points ahead of time, you, you, you realize, no, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. There isn't a single passage of scripture that you can go to that says, if you sing praises to God, you merit God's favor. Yet Eric Dykstra says that in this sermon. And by giving you the conclusion first, you realize, wait a second, there isn't a passage in the Bible that says anything of the sort. And that's the point. The other th- you know, One of the other points that he makes is that by singing, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, the, the singing creates all these psychological benefits. Okay, can you point me to any passages of Scripture that talk about the big psychological benefits of singing? Can you? Yeah, it's the reason why. Does the Bible say the reason why you need to sing to God is because you can then um, have big psychological benefits? You see, uh, I think if you if, if I. It, <laughs> Again, I'm working from a theory here. If I were to start with their conclusions and not give and not, and basically not give them the ability to deceive, you would realize the Bible doesn't teach that. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. So, um so as we listen to the sermon, keep in mind you're going to hear Eric Dykstra talk about if you sing praises that that is one of the ways in which you earn or merit God's favor and me giving it giving you the conclusion without him the having the ability to tell the story you you immediately go wait a second the Bible doesn't teach that and that's the point I think one of the ways in which you can truly understand whether or not somebody is correctly teaching the scripture is if you take their their points of their sermon their conclusions or their their the things that they want you to take down in your notes point number 1 do the x y or z point and here's why point number 2 x y or z if you just take down their points and scrub it from the bible i mean from, uh, it, i mean it, extricate it from the biblical teaching and you were to go to anybody and say, does the Bible teach this? They'd look at you and go, who told you that? And if they tell you who told you that, then you know you got a problem on your hands. And that's what Eric Dykstra does, okay? And so what I've noticed with Eric Dykstra is that there's a pattern to his sermons. He says some of the most absurd and outlandish statements that supposedly the Bible teaches. And here's how he does it. Let me deconstruct it for you. One of the things I noticed that Eric Dykstra is um, he creates the illusion that he's actually teaching from the Bible. And here's how he creates it. What he does, this, this is a pattern with him. What he does is he summarizes a Bible story. He'll, for instance, he's going to 
summarize in this sermon the story of Paul and Silas in Philippi in the Philippian jail, okay? But he doesn't actually ever open up the Bible and read the text. So what he does is he gives a synopsis of the story that is highly contextualized to 21st America, 21st century American culture, okay? So he gives a highly contextualized summary of a biblical story, but he's the one telling the story, not God. And and what I mean by that is, is that he's telling the story the way he wants to tell the story. He emphasizes the points that he wants to emphasize, and he's able to do this by summarizing the story without letting the text get in the way. So anybody who who is listening will go, well, that's a that's a, a fairly accurate, contextualized, albeit, um, uh, you know, a, a depiction of the story that we find in this chapter of of the Bible. Okay. So that that's the first step. And so he creates the illusion that he's teaching from the Bible by actually not teaching the Bible but summarizing it and he's in control of the summary, okay? It's it's kind of like the Eric Dykstra uh Cliff Notes edition if you would. Then from there he then psychologizes the story and what he then does is bring in out of context verses to support his his interpretation of his summary and the as if these out of context verses provide commentary on the story that he's reading when they don't and so i mean it's a pretty elaborate way in which he deceives people to co- convince them that he's actually engaging in biblical teaching but he's not okay and so as we're listening to this sermon today I want you, normally when we do our sermon reviews, we listen to the what. On this sermon, I want you to listen to the how. I want you to listen to the how. And as he makes his different points, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, okay, now if we were to just go, if you were to take down this point and go and ask a friend of yours, does the Bible teach this? And just give him the statement. Without the, without the ability for them to hear Eric Dykstra's, um, uh, well, technique, if you would, um, I don't think you'd find any other Christians who say, yeah, the Bible teaches that, because it doesn't. Eric Dykstra is actually very gifted. Very, He's got a very sophisticated technique that he employs to create the illusion that he's actually engaging in biblical teaching. Um, in fact, I would even say he's more more sophisticated in his Bible twisting than uh, Rick Warren. Rick Warren just flat out just mangles a text, and he has, like, no conscience when he does it. Eric Dykstra really works hard to create the impression that he's engaging in biblical teaching when he's not. And this this is a pattern in his sermons that I see repeated over and over and over again. So with that in mind, uh, let's dive into the sermon that we're going to be reviewing today. And the name of the sermon is uh, Radical Disciples. This is from his recently concluded Radical Sermon series. Uh, This is week two of that uh, particular sermon. So this is entitled Radical Disciples. It begins with, uh, you're going to hear audio of a home movie. um, And the home movie shows Eric Dykstra down in, I think, in Arkansas or Alabama, somewhere in the south, swinging out on a rope and then jumping into a into a river or a creek or something like that. And 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 so 
I'm going to leave in the audio of that, but I just, that's so you know, that's what you're hearing. Here we go. over 40. I am not over 40. <laughs> we don't usually show uh, home movies in church on the average weekend, but I thought I would show you just a, a little clip a clip from this summer. We went to Alabama and yeah, yeah, yeah Alabama, my wife loves Alabama. My kid, my, her parents are from there and like they live up in Northern Alabama in the mountains and it's gorgeous. And they, one afternoon they were like, hey, you guys should go swimming. We're like, cool. Where's the pool? And they're like, no, no, no. We're going to go to the hippie hole. I was like, what's the hippie hole? They're like, oh, it's awesome. It's just like this, you, you, you climb down in this canyon really, really far down. And there's a waterfall. And then there's this huge, ginormous pool at the bottom. And then there's this 40-foot cliff on one side. And somebody built a rope swing up there. And I'm like, oh, well, that sounds kind of cool. So I get down there and like, come on, who's going to go on the rope swing? Nobody in my whole group would go on the rope swing. So I'm the only dude that gets up on that rope swing. And seriously, that's a, 40 feet is a long way on a rope swing. Because if you swing out and then you hit it wrong, like you're gonna like belly flop at four, from 40 feet. That's gonna suck really, really bad. But I just thought, you know what? I, I don't get to Alabama very often and I like extreme sports. So I took a risk, pulled it all back. And then here's, if, 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 you can't see this in the video, but I got the rope back and I'm like, well, I already got it this far and they're already filming this. I better go. <laughs> Cause if I don't go, I'm just gonna look stupid. So all right, on the count of three, one, two, three, and it was so rad. <laughs> it was seriously so rad. Everybody said, that's so rad. Welcome to the second week of our Radical series. Man, last week I talked to you about Radical Jesus. Tonight I want to talk to you about Radical Disciples. I want to do a special shout out to Zimmerman and Big Lake and Princess. We say hello to those guys. Hi guys, thank you for hanging out with us in a bar and in two permanent locations. And we're, we're, we're so, so thankful that we're not just doing church in Elk River, that we're actively seeking to reach people in other communities who are far from God as well, right? Uh, that's good stuff. Last week, I talked to you about a radical Jesus. A radical Jesus who... Who just slept through storms. That's not normal. What do normal people do in storms? We're all gonna die, right? But Jesus, man, Jesus stayed calm in the middle of the storm. They had to go wake him up in the middle of the storm. And this is what I said the definition of being radical is. It's not being crazy. We think of radical as being crazy nuts and off the hook weird and like, like Lady Gaga in a meat dress. That's weird. That's radical. But that's not radical. Radical, I think the definition of radical, if you look in scripture, is radical is staying calm in the middle of a storm because nobody does that. That's not normal, average people. Normal people freak out as soon as stuff doesn't go their way. One little problem, one little issue or big problem, big issue. Lost my job, uh, got the foreclosure notice. We're going through divorce, uh, big storm. Oh no, what will I do? And immediately there's freak out rather than trust. But on the other hand, radical Jesus type people have an ability to be, it's all good, but there's a storm. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. My God's bigger than storms. That's radical, don't you think? And that's what I wanna to talk to you about again, again this weekend. I wanna to talk to you secondarily about radical disciples because if you understood who Jesus is, here's the thing. 
religious people versus real radical Jesus people. Real radical religious, real radical Jesus people, man, they have an ability to stay chilled. They're not freaking out. On the other hand, lots of religious people and non-religious people go through the same storms and they just freak out. Can't handle it. So tonight I want to talk to you about radical disciples. Can we do that? Good. Get a Bible and go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, you're going to page 665. 665. Now, pay close attention. He, okay. Acts, he's having people actually open up their Bibles and go to Acts chapter 16. And here's the problem. He's not really actually going to read from the Bible. So this is the first step. Step number one, have people open their Bibles to a particular passage. Step number two, summarize the passage, but don't actually read it from the biblical text. So watch what he's done here. He's asked people to open up their Bibles, but they're not really going to read their Bibles. Let's continue. Chapter 16, you want to page 665, 665 in a Bible. Um, I want you to get a pen out, piece of paper. I would love for you to take some notes, write some stuff down in the course of being here. Because maybe. Okay, now I'm going to ask you guys to, you know, to take out a pen and paper and take some notes. I, I think you need to do this. You, I want you to work through this because I want you to see the how. Okay, it's not just the what, it's the how. Let's continue. Be just may, but I gotta say this. I, I just say this. This to me, uh, this series in particular, it, I think it's one of the most encouraging series this church has ever done. Last week we just talked to you about chilling out in the middle of a storm. Tonight I want to talk to you literally about how to sing in the middle of a storm. I mean, singing in the middle—that's not, that's not normal. I mean, it's just really not normal. And I'm hoping, my prayer is, is that when you walk out, you're walking out of here more encouraged than when you walk in the door. That's really my prayer. Let me pray and we'll do it. Jesus, thank you so much for what you're about ready to do in this room. Okay, now, this is step number two. Pray something that sounds very religious and pious, inviting Jesus to speak in order to basically borrow Jesus's credibility because... I mean, hey, he prayed to Jesus right before he started to preach. So obviously Jesus has to answer this prayer. So we're hearing correctly God's word. Otherwise, Jesus didn't answer the prayer. We continue. Thank you for the fact that you're going to show up in Zimmerman and Big Lake, Princeton. Thank you, God, that you are the victorious one. You said we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, that where you are, there is peace. There's joy. When your presence is real, we know it and we're all good. I pray, God, for your presence to fall on every single service right now, not because we're awesome, but because you're awesome. Encourage every life. Come next to every single heart that is weary and broken and hurting and encourage them and challenge them and love them. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we all pray everyone said. Hey man, I want you to go back and think for a second. Think about a bad spot in your life. For some of you, it was when you realized that you really do have to go to prison. Okay, okay. watch what he did. Okay, this is important. This is an. This, I'm calling this anatomy of deceit. 
He encouraged people to open their Bibles to Acts chapter 16. He prayed to Jesus to teach them. And we're not in the biblical text. We're not reading the biblical text. Why on earth did he have people open to Acts chapter 16? Let's continue. There's lots of people around this church that have come out of prison. Just talked to a guy last week who's about ready to go in. Maybe that was your, maybe that, maybe that's your, your, your bad spot. Maybe it was the divorce and divorce sucks. I, I, I'm totally with you. God says he hates divorce. Maybe yours was the foreclosure notice. Maybe it was a health issue, but just think for a second. I know like happy thoughts by Eric. Think about the worst moments of life. Woohoo! <laughs> just for a second, put that in your brain. Okay. You got it? Come on. Say you got it. Just, just for a second, go there. And then I, here's what I, I, I want to ask. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with tonight. How do you overcome in situations like that? Seriously. Okay, so, okay here, so he's superimposing something on the text at this point. Their Bibles are open, and he's asked the leading question, how do you overcome in the worst situations in life? And that is now, he's creating the lens by which you're supposed to understand this particular biblical text. But he hasn't read it. Okay? So you already now, you know, if you don't know the Bible, you think this this passage is about overcoming bad situations in life. Okay? So how do you overcome is that what acts chapter 16 teaches how to overcome bad situations in life is that the reason why god the holy spirit had luke pen acts chapter 16 to teach people how to overcome like really, really, really bad, awful situations that come our way. Okay, I'm going to leave it open-ended. But again, I, uh, the reason I'm asking the question is because we're trying to deconstruct the how of what he does. So let's continue. Overcomer. You're better than think about the worst moments of life. Woohoo! <laughs> Just for a second, put that in your brain, okay? You got it? Come on, say you got it. Just, just for a second, go there. And then I, here's what I, I, I want to ask. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with tonight. How do you overcome in situations like that? Seriously, scripture says that you are more than an overcomer through Christ. If Christ resides in you, you're not just a champion. You are more than a champion. You're more than an overcomer. Okay, now notice what he did here. He's not citing a passage. This is not found in Acts chapter 16 about you being more than an overcomer. So the, but what he's doing is, is that he's creating the impression that that verse that says you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, basically saying that that verse is a commentary on what we're reading here in Acts chapter 16. He's creating some kind of a mental connection as if that verse has something to do with Acts chapter 16. Does the verse that talks about being more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, is that, is, is that really a commentary on Acts chapter 16? Is it good, sound biblical hermeneutics to connect those two passages? I, again, I'm just leaving it as an open-ended question right now because I want you to see the how. 
you're better than Rocky. Because <laughs> Rocky just overcame and barely beat Apollo Creed, right? Got all beat up in the end. Yo, Adrian, I won. Barely survived though, right? On the other hand, scripture says that you are more than conquerors. So literally, it is in you to overcome. So in the middle of whatever bad spot you have ever faced, how do you as a Christian overcome in those moments? That's a good question, don't you think? Because you're not just going to have bad spots in the past. You're going to have bad spots in the now and bad spots in the future. But if you can know the answer to this question... You could actually live as an overcomer and not just think of yourself as one. Okay, now what I'm going to do right now is uh, let's, if you got your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In fact, I have to make a new window here because um, I, I want you to take a look at the context now of that passage that he's referring to, but not citing. Okay, he's just mentioning it in passing. So the question that is on the table. Does this passage that talks about being more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ, is this really something that has anything to do with Acts chapter 16? That's the question, okay? By the way, um, the the verse that we're going to look at, here's here it is out of context. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 30, uh, 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay? So when you read the verse, it's the, the verse itself, if you were to read it, it begins with the, sent, with the statement, No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, which basically means there's something else going on in this passage, which requires us to look at the immediate context to figure out what is going on. So... Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-six. I'm gonna I'm gonna start there to try to determine the immediate context. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who, who, is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed 
all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice what he did here. When you put the verse back in context, you realize there's a lot more going on in this in this verse than he is telling us. In fact, by taking it out of context, he's drawing conclusions from the verse that cannot be drawn correctly if he had been actually put it in context. So here's what he did. He had people open up their Bibles. Why? I don't know at this point. To Acts chapter 16, he prayed to Jesus. Then he he started with, he immediately began with, you need to have um, a question that you want to answer today that frames what we're going to be looking at. And how do you overcome uh, how do you overcome in bad situations? How do you overcome bad situations? That, so he set the framework, and then he quoted Romans 8:37 out of context, as if it's a commentary on Acts chapter 16, which it is in some senses thematically connected to Acts chapter 16 because of the persecution that Paul and Silas experienced in Philippi. Okay, so it, you, it, it, it's, it's a legitimate cross-reference, if you would. But notice what he did there. He said, he, in fact, let me back up the audio because I want you to see this. He said, no, the scripture says we are more than conquerors or we are more than overcomers. It, um, uh, but it, the statement is, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers or height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, he he left out a lot there, and I, I, I having watched how this guy operates, I'm fairly convinced that he left all this stuff out on purpose. But uh, let me back this up. Here, listen again. Situations like that. Seriously, Scripture says that you are more than an overcomer through Christ. If Christ resides in you, you're not just a champion. You are more than a champion. You're more than an overcomer. Yeah, that verse doesn't actually teach that we're champions. And that overcoming is because we are in Christ and nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's what the verse says in context. So yeah, again, this is an anatomy of deceit. I want you. I'm deconstructing how he does what he does. We continue. You're better than Rocky. That's not what the text says. Because Rocky just overcame and barely beat Apollo Creed. Right? Got all beat up in the end. Yo, Adrian, I won. Barely survived though. Right? On the other hand, Scripture says that you are more than conquerors. So literally, it is in you to overcome. So in the middle of whatever... Yeah, the, the verse doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it's, it's in you to overcome. That is not a valid implication or exegetical point of that text when you put it back in its context. For bad spot you have ever faced, how do you as a Christian overcome 
in those moments? That's a good question, don't you think? Because you're not just going to have bad spots in the past. You're going to have bad spots in the now and bad spots in the future. But if you can know the answer to this question, you could actually live as an overcomer and not just think of yourself as one. Now, you can live as an overcomer. Weird category. The reason why I have you in Acts chapter 16 is there's a guy in Acts 16, two guys actually, Paul and Silas. I'm going to say Paul and Silas who are in the middle of a really, really bad spot. You ever read the book, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? Yep. Have you read that book before? Come on, put your... Love that book. Read it to my children many times. Hands up, all of our campuses. I think I'll move to Australia. Hor- horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. The, 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 Paul and Silas were in the middle of a horrible, no good, very bad day. They had gone out in the morning to preach the gospel and preach Jesus. And, and, and by- Now, this is where he, he's not really reading the text. He has everybody with an open Bible in Acts chapter 16, and he's not reading it. This is his summary. He's in charge of the narrative, not the Bible, which is key to how he does what he does. At the end of the day, there was a big old mob that hated them and arrested them and threw them in prison. But before they threw them in prison, they decided to hand them over to a guy, guys with canes. You guys ever heard of caning? Caning is where they take big wooden rods and they beat the crap out of you. And they caned them. I mean, just literally with big wooden rods, they beat the living snot out of them. Then they threw them in a Roman prison cell, um, locked with, up with guards next to them, and their feet were locked in the stocks, according to the book of Acts, chapter 16. That's a no good, horrible, very bad day. You thought your day was bad. That's a bad day. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now... now. If we were to read this story in context, is all of this emphasis on the no good, bad day really the key to this narrative? Um, yeah, let's look. Okay, so let's Acts chapter 16. We're going to start at 16. Okay, here's what it says. As we were going to the place of prayer now there in Philippi. We met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. Um, it's interesting. A spirit of divination. Um, um, the, the, in the Greek here, um, the, the idea is uh, it's spirit of pythos. Uh, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, the implication is is that this girl was probably in some way associated with the uh, the occult, uh, at, at specifically the Oracle at Delphi, um, which was one of the uh, I think temples to Apollo, but uh, the famous Oracle of Delphi. Uh, the, the Greek it just that, that that weird phrase you know makes it makes it part of her part of that cult. So she's possessed by a demon, probably in some way associated with the Oracle of Delphi, and she's crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Having become greatly annoyed, uh, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And, And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, 
these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his entire family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, now that's that's supposedly the story that makes up the basis of the sermon. But he, um, Eric Dykstra is not reading the text. He has everybody with an open Bible, and now he's giving his summary of this narrative. And he omits particular pieces of data, and he's telling the story as if this narrative is all supposedly about learning how to, well, be overcomers or more than conquerors in bad situations, in no good, very bad days that make you want to move to Australia. That's a line from the book, by the way. But really, this text is not about giving you steps or techniques so that you can be an overcomer or steps or techniques so that you can overcome in bad situations. It's not really what this is about. Granted, it's unique that Paul and Silas, after being beaten with rods, after having been caned, would then in the middle of the night be praying and singing hymns. Now, immediately the question comes up in this text, how is it that the jailer knows that he needs to be saved? Because his question is, what must I do to be saved? The answer to the question is simple. He was listening to the hymns. He was hearing the gospel and who Jesus was and the salvation that you know of Christianity offered through Jesus Christ in the hymns that were being sung. Okay, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. You want to get an example of one of the ancient hymns of Paul's day? Um, read uh, Philippians chapter two. Read Philippians chapter two. Um, that that whole section about um, you know Jesus Christ, although he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, he became obedient even you know to death on a cross. Many uh, uh, New Testament scholars argue that that really is a ancient, ancient, ancient 
him. So that's an example of maybe one what, what Paul and Silas were singing at that time. Okay, so they heard the gospel and the singing. The 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 you know, and God miraculously works on behalf of the Philippian jailer there and brings him to repentance and the forgiveness of his sins. It's a great story, but I mean, it yeah, for lack of a better way of putting it, I think Eric Dykstra by summarizing the text and not reading it, is able to take an obscure third or fourth, you know, sub-point of maybe, you know, this text and exalt it to uh, to a, a position of prominence. As a result of it, we're not really getting, I mean, this text was not written to teach you how to be overcomers. Yeah, not by any stretch of the imagination. That's really not what's going on here. And so... He's only able to teach what he's teaching by engaging in the technique that he's engaging in. And that technique is to create the impression that he's engaging in biblical teaching when he's not. Let's continue. In that moment, they have now been beaten. They're in the stocks. By the way, when they're in the stocks, they got to pee right there in the stocks. They got to go. They got to go there. They're not- yeah, the text doesn't say anything about that. Um, so why are you even bringing that point up? I'm letting them out. I mean, this is a bad spot. And now it's the middle of the night. They've been in that cell for, I don't know, a couple hours. And you know what's interesting? They had a fascinating way of dealing with their no good, horrible, very bad day. And in understanding this concept, they overcame. Can I show you what they did? This is Acts chapter 16. I want you to read verse 25. You can read it in your own Bibles. Acts 16 verse 25 says this. Around midnight. So it's midnight, man. After having the... So notice, he summarized everything up to this point, And now we're reading a verse from the story. Crap kicked out of him. Locked in the stocks. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What? What? They, they were doing what? They were singing. Yeah, we're locked in the stocks. It's awesome. <laughs> That's kind of how it sounds, right? Is that normal? That is the opposite of normal. What do most people do when in the middle of that kind of a... Okay, now notice what he's doing here at this point. He's psychologizing, okay? He's not actually doing exegesis, sound hermeneutics. He's psychologizing. Big difference. Situation. <laughs> Cry, worry, anxiety. It's all your fault we're here. They turn on each other. <laughs> right? If you hadn't preached so loud, they wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> Punching each other back and forth in the face. Cursing each other out. You know what I'm saying? The, the normal situation is to blame somebody else if I get stuck in a problem. It's, it like, uh, or, or I'm just going to get angry. Or I'm just going to get worried. Or I'm going to be fearful. Or I'm going to get tense and afraid but not disciples of Jesus. The disciples of Christ in the middle of, I think a worse day than probably whatever you've ever faced. Instead of crying about it, whining about it, or getting angry about it, they start to sing. Maybe they sang a song similar to what you sang a few minutes ago. God. Okay, now I want to point something out here. <clears throat> he's, this, is, he, this is turning into some kind of a psychological imperative that he's teaching here. If you are a true disciple of Jesus, 
then your psychological response to a bad situation will be like this, or you're not really a true disciple of Jesus, right? Is that what this text is really teaching? God is on our side, and he is not afraid, not afraid. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, they just started singing. Why? That's whack. That is whack. Normal people don't do that. Are they psychotic? They're just happy we're all screwed up. <laughs> no, man, they're not psychotic. So what's the deal with this? Here's the, here's the real deal. Real rad Jesus followers. They praise God even when their life feels like a prison cell. I want you to write that down. So we'll talk to you about it in a second week. Okay, now this... Uh, <clears throat> So here's the point. Real rad Jesus followers praise God even when their life feels like a prison cell. Hmm. So if you don't praise God when your life feels like a prison cell, then you're not a rad Jesus follower, right? Notice how, you know, if you take what he's saying here, and draw the you know the the obvious logical conclusions we've got a problem so you're not really a rad jesus follower if you don't have this same psychological response that the apostles had real radical jesus followers average jesus followers average christians you're not able to do this but real rad Jesus followers, it reminds me... Of, seen- yeah, notice, he just said, average Jesus followers don't do this. So you're either a rad Jesus follower or you're a, well, you're an average Jesus follower. I mean, you don't want to be average, do you? Okay. Notice here, you're, this, the, he's setting up some kind of a new legal code, some new law. This isn't the law of Moses. This is the law of Eric Dykstra. And in the, according to the law of Eric Dykstra, there are average Jesus followers and there are rad Jesus followers. And if, you, if you're really a rad Jesus follower, then you're going to have this particular psychological response to these particular type of problems. Otherwise, you're not really a rad Jesus follower. You're just average. Now, do you think Eric Dykstra thinks himself to be an average Jesus follower or a rad Jesus follower? Monty Python on the Holy Grail. <laughs> there's this one dude, they're, they're singing Knights of the Round Table, and there's like the dude in the prison, and he's all chained up, and he's like, da, 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 da. he's all clapping. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's like the best scene in the whole movie. I love that. It's like, how can he be that happy? How can you be that happy in the middle, middle of that bad of a situation? And that's what I want, I, what I want to explain. I want to explain why. It is probably the best thing you could ever do to sing in the middle of a storm. Okay, so did you hear? Okay, he's going to explain why, okay? He said he's going to explain why they're able to have that kind of response. And he says this is going to, he's going to explain why it's important to sing in the middle of a storm. So apparently the singing is the key to whether or not you're a rad Jesus follower or an average Jesus follower. Okay? I want you to understand why you would want to sing 
in the middle of a storm. Now, I, I, I would just throw this out there. It's kind of interesting. Um, you guys know about the, the terrorist attacks that happened in Norway a couple weeks ago? week, week and a half ago, one of the things they said was, uh, that I heard this on NPR, <laughs> so that's, that's, not, that's my source, uh, I heard this on NPR yesterday, they said that uh, many of the teenagers on the island that were trying to escape the gunmen, as they swam out in the water, they just sang to themselves as their friends went down. That's probably because the, the ones that survived and were singing were um, rad Jesus followers. I mean, don't you think the singing is the key? To keep themselves going, to keep themselves alive, they sang. God, I don't know what they sang. I know what I'd be saying. God is on our side, and he is not afraid. But why? Why? See, I don't even like that. Like, here's the thing. We're a church for people who don't do church. And so many of the people around here, we're not used to singing Christian church songs, first of all. Secondarily, we're a church that really likes to make sure there's lots of dudes in the audience. And, and like, there's lot, lots of the dudes in here, man, you don't even like to sing. You're like, somebody else can do that, I will watch. That's cool. Go for it. Sing away, boy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's kind of how we feel. I think I, I, sometimes, you're like, why would I ever want to sing? And so what I want to do is I just want to give you four reasons why you, if you will sing in the middle of your storm, you will find yourself in a much better place. Okay, so okay, so he's okay. This is going to be the outline then for the sermon. These are four reasons why, if you sing, it'll help you through the middle of a storm. Okay, so here's the question I have: Does Acts chapter sixteen teach these four reasons? Does Acts chapter sixteen really teach that if you sing in the middle of the storm uh, of a storm? That that's the key to being an overcomer. I again, when you start deconstructing the how as well as the what on this, man, this is, begins to be convoluted. We continue. Why you, if you will sing in the middle of your storm, you will find yourself in a much better place. Can I show you these four? This is the four things I want you to write down. First of all, write this down. Number one, why would I want to sing? Because praising God gets your mind off your problems, man. Everybody say, praising God gets my mind off my problems. Okay, now, if I were to just come to you and say, the Bible teaches that if you praise God, it will get your mind off your problems. Some of you might say, um, okay, um, yeah, do you have a chapter and verse on that? Where does the Bible say that you need to sing in the middle of your storms, one, because praising God gets your mind off your problems? Where does the Bible teach that? Acts chapter 16 doesn't say that. He's kind of sort of trying to make it say that, but where does the Bible teach this? We continue. Problems, man. Everybody say, praising God gets my mind off my problems. It does, man. Praising God gets your mind off your problems. I want to show you, I just want to show you a, 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 a one slide. Okay, I just want to show you one, one slide. Can come up on the screen? Can you see it for a second? What is it you see? What'd you see? You saw a dot. Why? Because that's what you focused on. Was there something besides dots on that page? The whole page was white space, but what'd you focus on? The dot. This is what people do with their problems all the time. 
They focus in on one little problem, and so they feel like their life is all problems. Or they focus in on their spouses, one little problem. Look how jacked my spouse is. And they can't get their head out of the one problem. And so now their spouse is crazy and weird and stupid. And they can't have a functional relationship any longer because all they're seeing is the one spot. Does that make sense? People do this with their lives constantly. They look at the one negative when if they would just turn their gaze and look at everything else, they'd be just fine. And that's what singing does. Singing out how awesome your God is. God is on your side and he is not afraid, man. When you start to sing that kind of stuff out to God, oh my gosh, it gets your mind off of your problems on how great your God is. And suddenly life isn't so hard anymore. I can do this. Does God promise you're not gonna have spots? No, he just promises you can overcome your spots. So you might wanna think about him instead of the spots. Are you with me? Okay, now notice, this is all practical law stuff. This is stuff you've got to do. And apparently the whole point of Acts chapter 16 is to teach you the importance of singing in bad situations so that, one, you can get your mind off of your problems. Um, Yeah, I don't see this as a valid um, exegetical part of this text. And not only that, it misses the main part of the text. It misses the like the bold headline of what this text is really all about. And that's people being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not what he's teaching here. He's psychologized the text and keying in not on Jesus Christ but keying in on singing as if that's the key to unlocking this text. The hidden principles are there in the singing. No, they're not. There, there's, no, there's no hidden principles here. That's, that's the, um, the sad truth about this passage is, is that he's not teaching it correctly. He summarized it so he can teach what he wants to teach. Which means this, you've got to decide in your core, in your gut, that no matter what spots are going on, I'm just going to sing out how great my God is. I mean, honestly. Where does the Bible teach that if you're in a spot, before you get there, you've got to decide in your core that the first thing you're going to do when you get in a spot is sing? Again, go back to what I said at the beginning of the program. If you take his points and extract them from the sermon and and you were to go to your friend and say, hey, listen. The Bible teaches that you have to make a decision before you get in a bad situation that you've gonna you, that you're gonna sing, uh, so that when the bad situation comes up, you you see so you got to decide this in your core. Then you that so that when it comes up, you'll start singing, and then by singing that that's the key to overcoming a bad situation. They look at you and go, "Where does the Bible say that?" The only way he's able to get away with this is because he has elaborately set up the illusion, almost magician style, that he's actually doing biblical teaching, but he's not. If anybody could have been PO'd, frustrated and angry, it would Paul and Silas. God, what? I'm your follower, man. I'm your disciple. I'm trying to tell people about you. And look where I, I got the crap kicked out of me today. I lost two teeth. 
My back's all ripped up. If anybody's got a right to be upset on a horrible, no good, very bad day, it's them. And instead of being upset and frustrated, they're singing out how great God is. They don't even notice the fact the skin's ripped off their back, they're missing two teeth, and they're bleeding off the side of their head. Because they're focusing on the greatness of God instead of all their problems. I'll give you- By the way, um, they, the, these apostles know better than anybody else that Jesus himself made it clear that, that, that his followers, his true followers, would be persecuted and hated by the world. Um, yeah, this, this is just all part of the territory. It's all, it all goes with the job of being an apostle and being a Christian persecution. You heard of it. So, uh, they weren't thrown for a loop as a result of the situation. Notice what he did is he projected there, uh, apparently our, our psychological response and, and, uh, use that, that somehow the counterpoint to this thing. Uh, but he's right in this sense. Their focus is on their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, not their circumstances. This is true. A verse about this. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It says this. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Set your mind on God, man, and how great God is and how good God is and how much God loves you and how much God's got a plan for your life and it's going to be all right and eventually you're going to thrive. And, like, and when you... Okay, now... <clears throat> Okay, this is this is this, he was ripped Colossians three two out of context. Here's the question: Is Colossians three two a commentary on Acts chapter sixteen? Are the two connected? Okay, because notice he hasn't really read Acts sixteen. He's read uh, Romans uh, eight. Uh, was it thirty seven out of context? He's now thrown in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, out of context, as if it's a commentary on Acts 16 that gives us a key to understanding how psychologically Paul and Silas were able to, to pull off this incredible miracle of not griping and complaining about their circumstances. That wasn't the miracle. That, that, the psychological piece of that, that's not the miracle. The miracle was that they preached the gospel and the Philippian jailer was brought to repentance and the forgiveness of his sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation, him and his entire household. That's the miracle. Not the, notice, the psychological thing is apparently the big miracle here. But that's not the miracle in the text. So let's take a look at Colossians chapter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this thing in context and uh, we're going to back up and we're going to go into Colossians chapter 2 because we t- we can't figure out what's going on in Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 if we don't understand the immediate context of of that verse and the immediate context of that of that verse is actually found by going backwards into Colossians chapter 2 okay so what we're going to do is we're going to Go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Okay. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision 
made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions or puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew or circumcision, or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when you read Colossians 3, 2 in context, this isn't presented as a solution to the psychological problem of psychologically coping with or dealing with bad bad circumstances. The idea here is setting our minds on things that are above because we are new creations in Christ. And the the payoff on that is the, the dichotomy between putting to death 
the 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 things that are earthly in us, such as sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, and things like that, and instead putting on love and the fruit of the Spirit because we are a new creation in Christ. That's what's going on in Colossians 3, verse 2. So again, what, kind of where we're at here, Eric Dykstra had everybody open their Bibles to Acts chapter 16. He only read one verse from Acts chapter 16. That was verse 25. He summarized the story, which means he was in charge of the narrative, not God's word. He then, because he was the one who summarized the story, he's able to make the point that he wants to make. And somehow Acts chapter 16 is now all about um, you uh, learning how to uh, psychologically have a good attitude in the middle of bad circumstances. And you're, if you do the, and the, the key then is singing. And if you do this correctly and you have the right attitude in bad circumstances, then you are a rad follower of Jesus. If you don't, you're just an average follower of Jesus. And the two supporting verses out of context were Romans eight thirty seven and Colossians 3, 2 neither of which are really commentaries on Acts chapter 16 at all. So you see how this works? He's creating the illusion that he's actually engaging in Bible teaching. And what he's teaching is God's will for you. But nothing could be farther from the truth. This is not what the Bible teaches. He's engaging in deception. And the, the, the this I'm trying to show you, there's a technique that he uses, and he uses this technique over and over and over again, summarizing a text, he is in charge of the narrative, pulling out of context verses to you know, for, and saying, you've got to apply these principles, and if you do, then you're a great Jesus follower, and if you don't, then you're just average. That's how this works. We continue. Focus on this versus earthly things. What's earthly things? All this stuff, like I don't have enough money. My car just broke down. No, I just read the passage, uh, Eric. The earthly things that Paul's referring to in Colossians chapter 3 are sexual immorality, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, the sins of the flesh. Notice by him, by him taking Colossians 3-2 out of context, he gets to decide what the earthly things are, not God's word. And this, the list that he's giving is radically different than the list that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 3. This is, this is bad. My spouse is this, my spouse is that, my kids are this, my kids are that. As soon as you're focusing on this, where does your, where does your whole life go? You just flushed it. On the other hand, if you would go, dude, it's raining outside. There's a storm going on. Let's praise. Let's tell God how awesome he is. Know what happened? The storm might not go away, but I bet your inner attitude might change. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? I'll give you a secondary thought. That that's an appropriate metaphor. Are you smelling what he's stepping in? That is an appropriate metaphor for what he's what is going on in this so-called sermon. Oh, no. oh, oh I got I, I, I have to tell you this. This is, this is really important. Um, I heard this 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 crazy story about a dude named Roger. 
And uh, Roger was having, like, a, just, like, he thought his life was in shambles. He's super depressed, all in despair. And so he went to his pastor, and he's like, dude, my life sucks, and everything's horrible. And, man, I just, like, and, and pastor said, okay, um, so um, uh, let's just dialogue for a second. I, and he put his hand on his shoulder and said, I'm so sorry, Roger, that your, your, your wife passed away. What? My wife's not dead. My wife's awesome. She's like a great wife. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry that your house burned down. What? I don't think my house burned down. My house is awesome. I got a great house. Well, I'm, I'm really, really sorry that you got cancer. I don't have cancer. I don't got cancer. I'm really sorry. Okay, I'm going to point something out. This illustration that he's giving does not help us understand Acts chapter 16 at all. In fact, it completely misses the point of Acts chapter 16, which is supposedly the primary text that he's teaching from. Oh, you lost your I, I didn't lose my job. I'm really sorry you don't have any food in your fridge, man. You don't have any shoes. I got shoes, and I got plenty of food in my fridge. Then what do you have to be so sorry for yourself about? And all of a sudden, he was like, oh. <laughs> See, you can focus on your spot, or you can focus on the goodness of your God. And if you would take your mind off of this little spot and put it on the greatness of your God, tomorrow's going to be just fine. Tonight when you go to sleep, you put your head on your pillow. Yeah, what's weird, he's admonishing people. They need to focus on the greatness of God. Then why isn't he preaching from the biblical texts that tell us in explicit terms how great our God is? So that we would then have something to focus on. Hmm. You're going to rest. And like Jesus, you're going to sleep. Because God's just in control. You still with me? Yeah. I'll give you a secondary thought. Why would you want to sing in the middle of the storm? Because uh, praising God refills your joy and changes your attitude. Praising God refills your joy and changes your attitude. Do you ever- so praising God refills your joy and changes your attitude. Is that why God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Luke to write Acts chapter 16? to tell us in no uncertain terms that praising God refills your joy and changes your attitude. Notice this is all some psychological payoff here. Notice that joy leaks. I mean, think about it. I mean, we'll just think about it like this for a second. This will be fun. Think about it uh, like happy fun balloon time. Remember when you were a kid and your, 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 uh, your parents would bring you home the, the awesome helium balloon. And when you first got the helium balloon, it always floated really, really well. It was awesome. That helium balloon got high, right? Helium balloon got high and it's awesome and it's happy and it's wonderful. But what happens to, a, to this balloon after about 24 hours, 48 hours? It starts to look like this, doesn't it? What happened to happy fun balloon time? Dad, my balloon is sad. <laughs> what happened to my poor balloon? It got sad. And I can tell you what happened. The helium leaked out, right? Same thing happens to your life all the time. Where does the Bible teach that your joy is like helium? It leaks out of the balloon, and by singing, that's how you refill your balloon with helium. Okay, again, if I were to take his main points and the things that he's saying and you know, and give them to you without his shtick where he tried to create the illusion that what he's doing is Bible teaching, 
if I were to tell you, hey, you know, um, the Bible teaches that uh, your your uh, the joy is like helium in a balloon and it leaks out, and so and the way you refill refill your joy is by singing. Somebody might look at you and go, "Have you been inhaling helium a lot lately?" Hmm. You might be filled with joy in one moment briefly, but how quickly does life beat that out of you? Very fast, man. Very fast. So if you can't figure out a way to constantly refill your joy, oh my gosh, you're going to walk around like this. You're going to spend your life walking around like this. Everything's terrible, man. Oh, no. If you're, if you're not singing, you're going to suffer from the Eeyore complex. Where does the Bible teach this? And it's just, well, it's just going to... But on the other hand, if you figure out a way to refill and I know how you can refill it. It's called singing. See, one of the, one of the benefits of singing a song, um, and honestly, like, I don't know what your, your song is. For me, when I was a kid growing up, I learned this song a long time ago. Um, and so even today, when I'm starting to feel like this, this is the song that I, I, I will sing. It's not a song, even a song we sing in church here. It's just, Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You're guarding me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. And I'll start to sing that on my bad days, and pretty soon, I get high. <laughs> I just start to get high. Like, I don't, I don't, like, maybe for you, you don't know many very Christian songs. Uh, so, so it doesn't have to be a Christian song. You just need to sing a song. You're going to start singing Tom Petty. I, 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 I honestly don't know what you, can, what you start singing. But I do know, as you sing, you refill your soul. And you know it's true. We're having a bad day. What do you want to do immediately? Click, turn the radio on. Get some music cranking. Why? Because it refills you almost instantly. I'll give you a verse of scripture about it in relationship, to, in relationship to spiritual singing. Don't be drunk with wine because that'll ruin your life. So don't drink too much. You shouldn't drink too much because it'll jack you. Everybody knows that. Drink too much, you're going to eject. By the way, he is supposedly quoting from Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and 19 that teaches that all you got to do is sing and then that'll refill your joy. It could even be a Tom Petty song. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your heart. You know what he just said? Don't drink too much, sing too much. If you will stop drinking so much and sing too much, the result is you're going to get high, but in a positive way. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit resides in you, what's the Spirit bring you? Joy, peace, love, the stuff that you really want anyway. Okay, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5 in context again to see if Ephesians chapter 5 really teaches that the secret to joy is learning how to sing. I can't believe I have to do this. Um, We're going to start at verse 1 so that we get the full immediate context. Therefore, by the way, I got to say this. If if it, it behooves me to mention this, Ephesians, the letter itself, begins with a clear declaration of the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and that we are saved by grace through faith, 
and not by works. And it, it, it goes to all of that. So before we get to the back end of this letter, it's important to note that these gospel imperatives, if you would, are grounded in the gospel. The context is the gospel. So let me summarize it this way. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God uh, as, as beloved children. Uh, let me say it this way. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He raised you from the dead. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, he raised you to life through his powerful, powerful Word in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, therefore, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm going to point this out. When we read this in context, there is something in this passage that makes it perfectly clear that this verse is not saying the key to refilling your joy that keeps getting deflated like a helium balloon is for you to sing. And when you sing, your joy will be filled up again. That's what he's trying to make this verse say, but there's something in the grammar that makes it impossible. Watch. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The context here is the addressing one another. Paul's not saying, 
And when you're down and depressed and in the dumps, sing a song and it'll lift you up. It'll be the wings. Uh, it'll be the wind beneath your seat. <clears throat> He's not saying that. He's saying address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Hmm. Almost sounds like church, don't you think? Yeah, he's missing that part. The one another means that this is not individual, but this is community in the, in the good sense. This is church. Hmm. He missed all that, and he's take, he was, by ripping the verse out of context, he's making it say things it doesn't say. But you got to make a conscious choice. I'm going to choose to sing. Tom Petty, you can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. And so it doesn't matter what you sing. I mean, it's like he learned this theology from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Come on, get your joy on. Uh huh, yeah. Earth, wind, and fire, they can sing. Eric Dykstra can't. I mean, this is a great song, man. Sing a song. Back to the sermon. See, I can't sing to save my life. Half of you can't sing either. You know what I'm saying? So we don't put you on the stage or me on the stage. That'd be bad. But it's not about what anybody hears. It's about what it does for you internally. I can remember my my grandfather died when I was in ninth grade. Got the call at about three o'clock in the morning. Died of a stroke. And, uh, Dad woke me up, told me, and we cried. And then I didn't see him for about 15 minutes. I didn't know where he was. 
And I went walking past the bathroom. I got to go, go pee before I go back, try to go back to sleep now. It's like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I went, I went towards the bathroom, and all of a sudden, I heard the shower on. And I could hear through the door my dad just screaming out how much he loved God, how good God is. And he was just singing from his guts till it hurt in that moment. Why? Because the only way you're going to survive a no good, horrible, very bad day is to sing. And as you do, it refills you and you overcome. So apparently the only way to survive a no good, very bad day is to sing. Is that what the Bible says, that the only way to survive a no good, very bad day is to sing? The Bible does not teach this. Okay, I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to pay a couple of bills. I <laughs> go scrub my mind for a minute. Um, it, it, oh, man. Um, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room-temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. 
Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, if you can't take the main points of a sermon and find them clearly taught in the Bible by themselves, you're not really hearing a biblical sermon. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important discernment radio outreach to you and to the world. 
You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. Okay, we're going to continue with this sermon as we deconstruct how he's doing this. And so far, oh man, we got some. We got statements that cannot be supported. Why? Because he's not really doing biblical teaching. He's creating the impression that he's doing biblical teaching by having people open up their Bibles to Acts 16. He doesn't read the text. He summarizes it. He's in charge of the narrative, and then he can tell the story any way he wants to tell the story, not the way the text is written. And now he's bringing in all of these verses that are taken out of context. When you go back and you read them in context, they're not saying the things that he's saying, like at all. We continue. Still with me? I'll give you a third thing. I'll give you a third one. Because praising God activates God's favor. Write that down. Because praising God activates. How many of you? Okay. Wow. Okay. Now, if I were, seriously, try this out with somebody that you know is a Christian. Say, you know, uh, do you believe that praising God activates God's favor? Okay. That is quid pro quo law talk, okay? God is waiting to grant you his favor, but you haven't done what's necessary to activate God's favor. It's up to you to do the correct thing in order to activate or to merit God's favor. This is false doctrine of the highest order. This is works-based self-righteousness, and apparently the hoop that you've got to go through, you've got to praise God in order to activate or merit God's favor. The Bible does not teach this anywhere. And so, if you again, if you were to take his main points and say, hey, the Bible teaches that you have to praise God in order to activate his favor— People might look at you and go, what are you smoking? But because this is delivered in the context of what appears to be biblical teaching, he's, he's able to create the illusion that what he's teaching is, is, is sound biblical doctrine. The Bible nowhere teaches, especially in Acts 16, that praising God activates God's favor. That would mean it merits it. Let's continue. All of our campuses, put your hands up if this is you. How many of you would really like to see God's face shine your direction, God's favor on your life? Come on, put your hands up. That's like pretty much universal, whether you believe in God or not. If you thought God exists, you'd like for him to like you. <laughs> you'd like for his favor to kind of come your direction. If he's real, it'd be really cool if God did some good stuff in my life. His favor would move my direction. Everybody kind of thinks that way. We want the favor of God. I'll tell you how you get it. Sing out how good your God is. Happens in this story in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Go back to the story for a second. There's nowhere in the text in Acts chapter 16, and I read it, 
right here on the program. There's not a single verse that you can go to that says that God's favor was activated by their praise. That's to teach works righteousness. I want you to see what happens. Okay, here's the story. Acts 16, 25 and 26. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Notice as you sing out on a very horrible, no good, very bad day, that uh, immediately people notice. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation, and all the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. What happened as they sang praise to God? Chains fell off. Doors opened. And freedom occurred. Same thing is absolutely true in your life. Oh, man. No, it's not. Absolutely no, it's not. You're allegorizing the text now. Okay, do you see what he's doing here? He's, he's teaching a works righteousness religion. Basically, if you want the chains in the, uh, of, of, the, of the prison of your life to fall off and the doors to fly open, well, you have to, God wants to give you his favor, but you first have to activate it. Notice he, he's engaging in what's called eisegesis, okay? There's exegesis, that's reading out what the text says, and there's eisegesis, reading into the text. Now, the verses that he read, let me read them for you again. He read Acts chapter 16, um, 25 and 26. So that being the case, um, I, I, I'll demonstrate this by pointing out that nowhere in these verses does it say that Paul and Silas activated God's favor by praising God. Okay, here's all it says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Anywhere in there does it say, the reason you know, God granted them his favor because they activated it by praising him. It doesn't say that. He just read that into it. There isn't a single verse that you can go to in the Bible that says that you activate God's favor by praising him as if this is somehow a principle that you can apply. So what, what Eric Dykstra is engaging in here now is just, I mean, Bible twisting of a magnitude that is unbelievable. If you would, in the middle of your worst day, in the middle of the most disappointing moments, in the middle of, I can't believe this just happened, if in those moments you praise how good God is and how much God loves you and how awesome he is in spite of where you are. If, 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 this is all law talk. The result of this is eventually doors open chains fall off because you've put your coin into the machine of God and God has to respond this way because if you praise him you activate his favor and freedom happens this is what happens to Paul and Silas man the doors open and freedom occurred it's amazing to me seriously in the past two weeks um I just decided I was gonna see like if I would just praise God more often what would result as part of that? I, I, I So now we've got an anecdotal story from his life. Apparently he's tried this out. I'd like to see the scientific data. Can we take this to MythBusters? 
I mean, seriously. Now he's he's going to his life story to prove that his eisegesis of this text actually is correct. Praying and we were fasting. Kelly and I were fasting for a few days. Uh, seriously, in the past 10 days, I have seen more miracles of God than almost in my whole life. There have been more ways in which all of a sudden he showed up and answered this prayer or that prayer about this issue or that issue or this person or that person or my life or my wife's life. Or like Seriously, more stuff good has happened. Why? Because as you focus on the good, you notice the results. You focus on how great God is, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, look what he's doing in my life. Look how awesome he is. Look how great he is. And you're like starting to list them off. Like I sat in staff meeting this last Wednesday, and I was like ticking off all the amazing things that God is doing in our life and in our church right now. And it really, I believe it's because I'm choosing to be. So all these miracles are because he is doing something. He's applied the right principle, and now he's activated God's favor. And if you want God's favor to be activated in your life, you have to apply the principles that he's teaching the way he applied them in his life, and you'll get the same results, guaranteed. Be a person of praise. And I just got to tell you this. My natural personality, maybe it's just a dude thing, but I shouldn't blame the dudes, okay? (laughs) Maybe it's everybody. But I'm not naturally... A positive person. Over the course of the last several years, I have had over and over and over again to work on my, God is working on my character to in the middle of anything and everything to be positive and shout how good God is and to be positive and shout how good God is and to be positive and shout how good, why? Because as I do that, good things occur. What's the opposite? Negative happens. Yeah, let's focus on that. Oh, that's awful, man. That's so bad. That's so horrible. And the next day you're feeling terrible. And the next day you're feeling terrible. And look, there's some more negative and there's some terrible. And pretty soon, as you focus on all the terrible, what happens? You just invited more terrible. Because you're focusing on the spot. But on the other hand, if you're focused... So does the Bible teach that if you focus on the negative that you're inviting the terrible into your life? You got any verses that teach that? And on God and praising him, you know what result is? You're calling the favor of God to you. I'll give you a... Wow, so if, uh, if, you, if you focus on the positive, you're calling the favor of God to you. Like you, you can whistle to God. Hear God... Here, God, come here. I'm calling you. Look, I'm being positive, so you got to give me your favor. Come on, God. Great verse about it. This is Psalms chapter 22, verse 3. It says this in two different translations. It does not say it in the translation that you have, but in two other translations, it says this. God inhabits the praises of his people. So Psalm chapter 22, verse 3, again, ripped out of context. Um, apparently supposedly teaches that you see the the words God inhabits the praises of his people. That means that if you, if you praise God, that you earn his favor, that you activate his favor. That's not what Psalm 22 verse three says, by the way, a good translation like the ESV says, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. Very different when you actually read it in a good translation. So, but let me read uh, Psalm chapter 22. 
you'll notice immediately who this passage is about. It's prophetic. This is a psalm written by David. We're talking hundreds of years before his greater son Jesus is born. But we read, are you ready for this? This is an amazing prophecy of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, that you do, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You'll notice, apparently, um, the, the psalmist here is focusing on the negative. How can he possibly be activating God's favor? <clears throat> Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make... they. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from you, my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, and they open wide their mouths at me. They are like ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if that doesn't sound like uh, Jesus' crucifixion prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth, and I don't know what does. I mean, it's it's a graphic, graphic description, prophetically, of uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Now, again, I, he just quoted um, Psalm 22, verse 3, that says that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. And, I mean, that just misses the whole point of Psalm 22. And it's that, but those words do not mean that God... God's favor is activated if you praise him. That's not what it says at all. And again, it misses the whole point. I don't think it is. I don't think it is an accident that the verse that he quotes, Psalm 22, verse uh, Psalm 22, verse three, that even when you go back and read it in context, it's all about Jesus and he misses all of that. Where is Jesus in this sermon, by the way? I mean, does he does he make much of an appearance at all? I mean, seriously. We continue. God inhabits the praises of his people. What's the word inhabits mean? To indwell, to live in. So God lives in praise. That when you praise 
God, and you're like, God, look how good you are, and look how awesome you are, and you're shouting out and singing out the greatness of God. God lives in that, which means you're moving that great God right into your life. That's not what that verse means at all. I mean, th- I mean, seriously, it's, it's Eric. It's like you're making up stuff and calling it Christianity. I mean, seriously. Did they teach you how to do this in Bible college? Because this is not sound hermeneutics in in exegesis at all. This is a mangling of God's word and a total missing of the point of the text. You're moving that great God right into your life. You move him closer, which is where you want him anyway. You want the favor of God in your life. I know how you get it. You praise. This is why we start worship services with singing. Honestly, we're inviting a great God into this room or whatever campus we're at in order that as his presence is here, we will be changed. So when the band sings, the band's not singing hopeful, hopefully to entertain you. The band's singing in hopes that you'll sing too, get your mind off your problems and onto your great God. And so that he's not just going to interact with their lives, but he's going to interact with your lives as you call the great savior of the universe to your life, your situation, your issues, your struggles. As you call the great savior of the universe through your praise. Uh, Here, Jesus, come here, Jesus. I'm praising you. Come on. Come closer to me so I can be happy. And you walk out empowered more than a conqueror. Do you want the favor of God on your life? Man, I do. That's why I sing. Yeah, because that's how you merit it. That's how you activate it. Um, The favor of God was won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. Without Christ and his shed blood on the cross, we don't have the favor of God. And God's favor is given to us as a gift by grace through faith. This is just so bad, so awful. Thing in the middle of a storm. But I'll give you one more. I think it's equally important. Write this down, number four. Because praising God moves the hearts of others to commit to Christ. Do you remember a few years ago uh, when... Really, praising God moves the hearts of others to commit to Christ. Uh, Only if the Pelagian heresy is true. Uh, This is unbelievable. There isn't a Bible verse that says everything any of this we continue i don't know if you remember this or not there was this horrible tragedy in which a gunman walked into an amish school and obliterated a bunch of kids how many of you remember that story like from several years i mean it was just a whole i mean it was it was mind-numbingly awful but the amazing thing is how the amish responded to that situation and all of that they just forgave the attacker and praised God. And you know what? Stories all over the place were buzzing. How could they do that? How could they do that? How could they do that? People who were not interested in faith were some. Just want to remind you the Amish story isn't in the Bible. I'm really intrigued by being Amish. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or what's the Amish got that we don't got? 
Jesus. See, as you praise God, people far from God, as you praise God in the middle of your divorce or your bad financial situation or this struggle or that struggle or this issue or that issue, as you, are, you stay positive, encouraging, and just like praising God for how awesome he is, as you do that, people around you are like, dang, check it. What's that guy got? And you can respond with, that's what we do. <laughs> We praise God. See, I'm like my, my, my wife. She, I learned that. I learned that on vacation. I learned that, like I heard somebody do it. I was like, "That's the most awesome phrase in the whole world." That's how we do. <laughs> I just learned that. I was like, "Dude, that's sweet. I got to use it." <laughs> so I throw that out there. But seriously, that's how Christians do. We praise because it's not ever about us. Our lives are never about just us. Every non-Christian on planet Earth that you know is watching you in the middle of all of your interactions. And when you praise, that's how we do. They get intrigued. They get interested in your God. What's that guy got that nobody else got? How's he do that? This is the story, Acts chapter 16, 29 to 34. It just says this. Okay, now, so now he's reading the 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 section of Acts chapter sixteen out of context after he's made his point, and he's trying to wedge his point into the text. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This is right after the after the earthquake. Everybody's freaking out. The jailer called for lights, ran to the dungeon, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. They brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Yeah, like, how can I get what you got? Are you like selling it in snow cones or something? Can I, like, is it, a, I'll take that snow cone. Now, I'm going to point something out here. He omitted a vital part of the story. He omitted the earthquake, the doors flying open. He omitted the part about the fact that he was about to commit suicide, and yet everybody was still in the jail, even though the doors were all opened. So he omitted that part of the story, and by omitting it, he's creating the impression that apparently it was their praise all by itself that creates interest in, uh, in their God. They replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Trust Christ, follow Christ, love Christ. The power of Christ will reside in you. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. They all gave their lives to Christ. All of them. They watched as these almost like, seriously, if I was there, these people were almost psychopaths. Like, how on earth can they be singing in the middle of that? that that's, that's nuts. That will make an impact in your head. And they all give their lives to Christ. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in what? See, all it takes is for you in the middle of your storm to react with praise to God. You lost your house. God, I praise you that I lost my house. I know eventually you're going to give me another one. It's going to be awesome. This is not what the text says. 
lost your job. I know that you're a good God, eventually you're gonna give me another one. It's all good, God, I'm gonna praise you in the middle of losing my house, losing my job. Or I know I just got divorced, but God, I'm gonna trust that even though I lost this relationship, that my future is still good, I'm gonna worship you and love you and praise you. And as you do what's crazy, all the people around you far from God, take notice. That's rad, man, that's rad. And little by little, they inch toward the cross. No, they don't. They can't. They're dead in trespasses and sins. God has to actually regenerate them. People don't inch toward the cross. You can preach at them all you want, but they will respond more by how you handle your hard times. That's funny because the Apostle Paul completely disagrees with you. Acts, uh, not Acts, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When you read the book of Acts, nowhere do we have the Apostle Paul and his uh, his evangelism buddy just blowing into town and setting up shop and just living and setting an example for people so that they were inching towards the cross and more interested in what they uh, were, the, the God they believed in. No, they every town they went into, they preached. Every town they went into, they proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, them as eyewitnesses of his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus as Messiah via fulfilled prophecy. They preached. What, what Eric Dykstra just said, that is 180 degrees different than what the Bible teaches. Than anything else. So once again, I would say this. What is your bad spot? What's the spot that, right now, what's the spot that you're most caught up in? That's hurting the worst. My challenge to you is, it's so simple. I dare you to get rad and do what Paul and Silas did. Just sing, man. Praise God in the middle of it. Why, Pastor Eric, why? I'll put them up again. Because it changes your mindset changes your mind man you get your thinking changed you're gonna be all good because the bible doesn't teach this that it changes your mindset refills your joy activates the favor of god and causes people to inch towards the cross it refills your joy because it activates the favor of god which is what you want anyway and it moves the hearts of other people to consider your jesus now here's the thing five or six weeks from now is the fall launch of this church already we're already back. Summer's almost over. We're only have five or six more weeks. And then we're going to invite people far from God to this place to hear about Jesus on our awesome new fall launch series on relationships. And the- Yeah, I, <clears throat> here's the simple thing to remember. Friends don't let friends go to the Crossing Church. Yeah, this guy is a Bible twister extraordinaire. And this whole program was designed to help you see how he does it. It's going to be amazing, whatever. But seriously, how you act now before you ever invite them, it's going to make all the difference. This sounds like a, like an Amway sales pitch. You know what I'm saying? As we move closer to seeing more people who are far from God know who Jesus is at this, at this church, how you act now many times will determine whether they say yes or no to an invitation that you're going to present. Come hear about my Jesus, how good my God is. 
And then lastly, I just need to say this. I, like, I really need to say this. Okay, what you need is not an easier life. You just need the strength to become an overcomer. Really? See, because our world's full of all kinds of weak people who cannot overcome. Everybody's got the same problems, really. We all got the same struggles, the same issues. The world is hard. Eric, what color is the sky on your planet? I'm curious. But what you need is the strength to overcome in any and every situation. And I know how that occurs. You just start singing in the middle of your storm. Yeah, that'll solve everything right there. It doesn't matter if it's a a hymn or a song or a spiritual song. It could be Tom Petty. It doesn't matter. It'll lift you right out of that situation. You can sing Tom Petty and it'll activate God's favor in your life. God is on our side and he is not afraid, not afraid. Victory is here. He will win the day. I am just officially creeped out. I pray you'll do it. I pray that in a minute, when we give an offering, and the band comes up here and sings, that you sing out the greatness of your God with them and watch everything change as his favor falls. Will you pray with me? Nope. So there, that, <clears throat> let's recap. Okay, what happened here? What you heard was, a, I mean, the, the four points that he made. I mean, it's, that was not Bible teaching. Those were not even, you know, praising God gets my mind off of my problems. It creates a new mindset. Praising God refills your joy and, and changes your attitude. Praising God activates God's favor. There's no passage that says anything even remotely like that. And uh, point number four would only be true if the Pelagian heresy was correct. And it's not. It's called a heresy for a reason. So how did this happen? This is how it happened. He had people open their Bibles, and then he didn't read. He gave his summary. He psychologized and allegorized the story, omitting key pieces and emphasizing other parts in order to weave a tapestry of his own theology. Then to support his theology, he pulled in other verses out of context that when you put them into context, don't say the things he said they were saying. All of this was literally, literally um, just deceit, deceit, and deceit. Major Bible twisting, completely missing the point of the text. It was sans Jesus. Jesus was not anywhere to be seen. The biblical gospel was not proclaimed. Instead, a theology of his own making that truly had elements of flat-out legalistic self-righteousness. If you sing, then you you activate God's favor. That's, that's, That's works righteousness, quid pro quo stuff. And this guy is gifted at this. And this, by the way, is the technique he uses in the vast majority of his sermons. You know, he creates the illusion that he's actually engaging in Bible teaching, but he's not. He isn't. In fact, I, you know, I recommend if you, if you want to do some more research on this, go and take, take a listen to some of his other sermons. You'll see he uses this technique quite a bit. And this is an anatomy, an, an anatomy of deceit. 
That's why I wanted to do this today, to really take some time to show you how this is done, not just talk about what he said, but show you how he created the illusion that what he was really doing was in, was uh, teaching the Bible. And by the way, folks, these are the techniques that the cults use, not, not solid biblical pastors. This guy is dangerous, super dangerous. So if you have friends and, you know, people who there in Elk River, Minnesota, invite them to uh, uh, you know, my lecture on Friday, September 9th at Elk River High School, right across the street from the crossing. And uh, it's entitled Double Crossed by the Crossing. And it's it starts at 630 there. So invite your friends and uh, in, in pray, pray that God uses this event uh, to open the eyes of people to just what kind of a wolf they have there in their town and pray that uh, this leads either to his repentance or to uh or to the market drying up for Eric Dykstra's so-called church. Okay, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener supported radio. Please visit our website and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons uh, in order to support us and thank you for your support. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me your feedback, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Something he failed to mention. Amen. Amen.